I want to start right in at Romans chapter 8, verse 11. A quick verse, but a stunning one. And I want to encourage you right now even to be posturing your hearts as we just prayed. That we're not just going through the motions real quick for another 30 minutes so we can check a box and say, you know, we've had a nice Easter bye. We believe that God is on the move, in the room, and wanting to encounter people. He's already doing it. I know in worship that many of you connect beautifully with God in that way, and that I believe he wants to continue that. This is not just an exercise in opening up the Bible for intellectual information. We believe the Spirit of God wants to move. He wants you to encounter Jesus alive, risen, real, personal, caring about your life right now. So I encourage you to expect that. We're going to have an opportunity at the end to come forward and, and be prayed for. And we believe that God wants you to encounter some resurrection in your life today. That's what this verse says in Romans 8, 11. It's a mind-boggling verse. It says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That is worth pondering. As a believer in Jesus, the same Spirit of God that brought resurrection to Jesus is alive in you. Another way to say that is resurrection power is flowing in your spiritual veins. The resurrected King, as we just sang, is resurrecting you, is resurrecting me. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that his words can be trusted, that he has come to resurrect each and every one of us from the dead in every way, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally, into his abundant life. Amen. <laughs> Jesus said it like this, John 10, 10, the thief, there is an enemy, there is an enemy of your soul who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life that's resurrection, that you may have life. Someone wants to kill you in this world, in this spiritual battle that all of us are in every day. Someone is your enemy, and it's not people. There is a spiritual enemy. The battle is not flesh and blood. I mean, people may do bad things, but as the Bible clearly teaches, people are not our enemy. The battle is against not flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And Jesus talks about that, says we have real, a real enemy who's coming to steal, kill, and destroy our soul, who wants to put us in the grave once and for all, who wants us to be spiritually dead, emotionally broken. And Jesus says, nope. <laughs> I am here to resurrect you all to new life, to the abundant life. This is just as much about now as it is eternity. When you look at Jesus modeling this resurrection life, this abundant life, this kingdom of God transforming lives, you see that in the Gospels, and what you see from Jesus is <laughs> the resurrection life transforming broken people, hurting people, outcasted people, right where they're at right now. 
Jesus doesn't just say, well, hey, there's good news that eternity's going to be better than this. And oh my, is it. But the point is, in Jesus, that tastes of that eternity start now. Or you can be saved, healed, forgiven, redeemed, restored, made new, a new identity, a new purpose, new power, new character. Jesus said, I have come to make all things new. That starts now. We want to focus on the reality that the resurrected king wants to resurrect you and me right now. He wants to bring us more fully alive into the abundant life of his kingdom rule and reign. And it's an amazing thing. When he is king, when he is Lord, when he reigns in our life, that's when we will be most fully alive. So he gets the glory and we're fully alive. It's awesome. I want to give us just two inspiring examples, what you might call testimonies this morning, of lives that were resurrected by knowing Jesus. And I want to start towards the end of the story where we see that resurrection already at work and then kind of work backwards a little bit. Our first testimony this morning is from Mary Magdalene. So we can go to Resurrection Sunday here Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which is Jesus' mother, went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Very famous passage, understandably so. A few things that I find wildly interesting is that this is one of the few scenes in Jesus' life that is corroborated by all four Gospels. Mary's story that Mary Magdalene was the first to the tomb on Resurrection Day is corroborated in all four Gospels, that she woke up early to go to the tomb, to seek Jesus, as the angel said, to seek Jesus who was crucified. But not only was she the first to witness the resurrection, she was commissioned to be the first witness of the resurrection which is an absolutely amazing thing to ponder. 
given that at that time, in that culture, women were not even allowed to testify as witnesses in a court of law. So a woman could be a witness to a crime. She could see a murder happen. She could see a robbery happen, whatever horrible crime. She could witness it and was not seen as worthy to be a credible witness to testify. But God. The angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Matthew 28, 7. That word go from the angel is the exact same word go on the lips of Jesus in the Great Commission. Go and tell. And then Jesus says, do not be afraid. In Matthew 10 or 28, 10, he meets them personally and says, go and tell. That word tell is the Greek word apongelo, which means proclaim. It's where we get the word evangelism. It means share, share the news. Apongelo. Share the news. The word evangelism, we get in English, euangelion. It's like the same word, except they add good. So it's this proclaiming of news. And it was actually the word used to summarize the preaching ministry of Jesus earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 12, verse, verse 18. There's a quote from Isaiah that says, that, that is fulfilled in Jesus. It says, God speaking from Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will angelo, justice to the Gentiles. He will proclaim. He will share the news, the good news to the Gentiles. So the angel says, go and tell the disciples that he is risen. Jesus says, go and proclaim the news that I am risen. I think it's pretty safe to say Mary's the first preacher of the resurrection. She was the first human on the planet to ever get charged by Jesus to go and proclaim to another human he is risen. What an honor. That is a resurrected life. And the fact that the Bible hinges the resurrection story on, on her testimony is absolutely incredible. It would not stand up in a court of law. So the Bible has all four of these gospels corroborate that this is what happened, this is what the angel did, this is what Jesus did, and this is like everything hinges on this. If she's lying, if she's wrong, if she somehow stole the body, it's all a lie. Jesus says, go and tell. Be the first that has the honor to declare to others he is risen. That is a resurrected life, especially when you think about who she is and where she came from. Luke 8, 1 to 3 introduces us to Mary Magdalene. It says this, Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women whom he had healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. 
wildly interesting and fascinating passage, breaking all sorts of cultural boundaries there. That is saying that Jesus had 12 disciples who were guys and then a bunch of women who were with him, meaning they are disciples as well, and they are traveling as a ministry team and don't even have time to go in to how many rules that's breaking in the culture. Let's focus on Mary Magdalene, who is identified, in a sense, as the leader of the female disciples here, as she is first. She is prominent. What do we know about her? Nothing good. She is from Magdala, which is a bad place to be from, a city of disrepute, known for promiscuous activities. You could kind of think along the lines in the Old Testament of like a Sodom and Gomorrah type, for good upstanding, moral and righteous Jew, you did not want to be associated with Magdala. Kind of the phrase, nothing good comes out of there. Also from Luke, we see that she, Luke 8 right here, she was in some kind of physical state of infirmity, some kind of sickness or disease, which at that time was almost universally seen as a judgment from God for some kind of sin in your life. You can add that to her reputation. She was also in a serious place of spiritual bondage. There is no other person specifically named other than Legion that had so many demons. Well, that's not his name. That's how many demons he had. But there's no other person specifically named to have so many demons that Jesus cast out of them. So this very well indicates that she was living life in a very dark place. Where she, whether she chose it or whether it was done to her, we don't know. But seven demons is a deep darkness. All of these things, where she's from, ultimately the family that she was originated from, her physical state of being, her spiritual state of being, all of these culturally would say, God is against you because of your unrighteousness. One word that would surely cover Mary's life. Shame. If she was wrapped in something, it would be shame. From the wrong place. Got all sorts of physical demonstrations that you are unloved, unworthy, outcasted, unrighteous, and then you have this spiritual darkness tormenting you, seven demons that are apparent. Many, many people say that she was this woman who, right before Luke 8, in Luke 7, came and threw herself at Jesus' feet, a woman of the city, a sinner, who had a, an alabaster jar of great value and found out where Jesus was and threw herself at his feet and just worshipped him, wiped, her, wiped his feet with her tears and the expensive ointment. And Jesus said, you know, the one who has been loved much, forgiven much, loves much. And then very interestingly, the scene immediately the very next thing we see soon afterwards is it's this Luke 1.8. Soon afterwards, and it shares this picture of, of the women that were with him 
as disciples on the journey, and Mary Magdalene is named. And I wonder, this is conjecture, but I wonder if that's Luke's kind of subtle way, maybe even a way of protecting her identity in a bit in Luke 7. But if Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, which we don't see that scene, we just hear about it. So she had already some prior knowledge of Jesus. Let's say there was some kind of encounter where he, she meets Jesus, he casts out seven demons, and then she goes on about her way, and then maybe, just maybe, she hears where he is, and she just then gives him everything. And the next thing you know, she's following him. Very possible. But it fits with her life. We know she was a woman of disrepute from the wrong place, physical infirmities, spiritual infirmities, and yet from that shame to a resurrected life of honor where Jesus says, you are worthy to be the first witness of my resurrection. Go and declare he is risen. That's a resurrected life. That is a woman who from every angle in her life, culturally, spiritually, physically, relationally, does not deserve to be in that position, should not be in that position. She carries shame. And Jesus says, that is not the abundant life for you, my beloved daughter. That is an example of the resurrection life that happens when you follow Jesus. One other example, this fella named Peter. There's a great scene in the book of Acts, chapter 4. And this is Peter living in resurrection life. He and John are at the, going into the temple, and it says that someone who, who had a, a sickness and disease from birth, he was, was it he couldn't see? Peter and John, let's see. Let's go into chapter 3, verse 1. A man lame from birth was being carried. They laid him daily at the gate of the temple, and he's begging for alms. Peter looked at him, fixed his attention, and he said in verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms. They were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And then let's pick it up, the response of the leaders. This is chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers... And elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst of this group here, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they, were, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So Peter and John are put in the middle of the leaders, the high priestly families, the scribes, all the, the big wigs, the big dogs, the, one are in, the ones who are in charge of everything in every way, like spiritually, economically, culturally. Couldn't you go in and out of the temple? Who's allowed to do what? I mean, they are like in charge of life. And Peter and John find themselves right in the middle of them. And it says the leaders were astonished. It's a fascinating, important phrase. They were astonished at what? Well, two things are very clear. They were astonished at the wonder-working power that flowed through Peter and John. They all knew the man who was crippled and lame and sat at the beautiful gate and begged. They saw him dancing in the temple. They saw him worshiping God, and they had to acknowledge that something radical took place, a miracle Miraculous power had flowed through these Galileans that had followed Jesus. So they were astonished at the miracle working power and they were astonished at their boldness. That they would be willing, knowing in a way that their life was on the line, that everything that they held dear to them, culturally, spiritually, physically, was on the line as they sat in front of the high priestly family who had the authority to call forth for them to be stoned. And in that moment, they spoke with such boldness and confidence and a, and a calm clarity of who they are, who they follow, what happened, what are they all about. And the leaders were astonished at their boldness in the face of adversity. And that word astonished is very important to Luke, who wrote Acts. And Luke. <laughs> And in Luke, that word astonished is used multiple times to describe people's response to Jesus. In Luke 4.32, it says they were astonished at his teaching, for he possessed authority. And in Luke 9, when Jesus cast out a demon from that little boy, famous story, it says all were astonished at the majesty of God shown in Jesus. Not coincidentally, Luke uses the exact same word to describe people's response to Jesus and to Peter. People were astonished at their power and boldness. That is a resurrected life. When you get compared to Jesus... <laughs> You're living a resurrected life. When people have the same kind of response to you and who you are and what comes out of you as they do to Jesus, you're living a resurrected life. 
But that is not where Peter came from. You can even see it in this text. He's just an ordinary guy. He's an uneducated man. That's part of why they were astonished. It says in verse 13, when they saw, the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. The word common is a fun one. Idiotes. 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 It's a negative term now, and it was a negative term then. Idiotes, it means you are just common. You are nothing special. You are certainly not of the high priestly family who's gathered to look at you and throw you in the middle and test you. You're a commoner. You're a peasant. You're not even educated. You're clearly inferior to us, was the mindset of the leaders. And Peter knew it. He knew that's who he was. He knew he was an idiotes. Yet, there is more. Boldness in the face of adversity was not always Peter's strong suit. If we can back up a little bit, he was the one who talked a big game. In fact, he tried to throw under the bus all of his closest friends. When Jesus spoke at the Last Supper of, his, of how everyone was going to betray him, deny him, flee and run, they would strike the shepherd and he, they would all flee, Peter piped up in the middle and said, No! Even if all of them betray you, Lord, I will never betray you. I mean, that's not good teamwork, Peter. <laughs> if you think about this is a human reality here. You're with 12 people who are supposed to be the team that's going to carry on Jesus' mission after he goes. And Jesus says, hey, times are going to get hard, and you, you guys are going to flee. You're going to betray me. And Peter pipes up and says, no, I love you. I would never do that. I love you more than all of them, and I would never leave you even if they do. I believe they will, but not me. And in his utter humiliation, not too much longer from that moment, he finds himself warming by a fire because at the first moment of dangerous conflict, he flees. And now he's alone. He's not even with the disciples. There's no other ones around. So he's literally by himself, on the run, in terror from the conflict that has ensued around Jesus. So he's warming himself by the fire. And culturally, again, in a moment that would be as humiliating as possible, a young servant girl comes up to him. So culturally, on the, ta on the totem pole of status and hierarchy, that is the lowest place you can be with the little, littlest rights, littlest value, least worth, unable to even give a testimony or give a witness. A young girl says to Peter, hey, aren't you one of the Galileans? And he runs away from this little girl and says, I never knew him. And then it picks up in verse 71 of Matthew 26 to say, and when he went out from there, another servant girl saw him. 
So again, this is the lowest possibly least powerful person that could confront him. And, and she said to the bystanders, hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. As a good Jew, he took a sacred oath this time. He says, I do not know the man. Wow. That's a far fall from his bold proclamation in front of all his brothers that he would be the last to ever forsake Jesus. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. That's interesting. He cursed himself and he swore, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. So one word that surely covered Peter's life, in addition to idiotes, how about coward? To go and weep bitterly in your cowardice. You are the exact opposite of who you claim to be. And in fact, you're the exact opposite of who Jesus said you were, the rock. Yet Jesus did not give up on him. You fast forward to Acts chapter 4, and you fast forward from the resurrection where Peter gets chased down by Jesus, fishing, Peter's fishing, and Jesus restores him. You know the famous scene where in the same number of times that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And with each kind of declaration, even though Peter's frustrated, there is a, a, a recommittal to the deep love, a public declaration of the love that he has for Jesus, even though he was cowardly when it counted most. And Jesus restores him and says, go then, feed my sheep. And then he's empowered by the Spirit. And so this is a journey of resurrection in the life of another person who on their own could do nothing like Acts chapter 4, where they're bold and powerful. What Peter looks like on his own is a cowardly idiot. And that's who he is on his own. And through following Jesus in the resurrected life of knowing Jesus, he has miraculous power and boldness flowing through his veins where he is the rock that Jesus spoke of. How did these changes take place in these kind of lives? Mary Magdalene, Peter. There's this beautiful sentence that finishes off this Acts passage. It says this in verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, idiots. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The resurrection life took place for Peter because he had been with Jesus. The resurrection life took place for Mary because she had been with Jesus. That is what it's all about. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God, to be with God. 
to know God. And the last place you want to be if you claim to be a Christian is to not know God. That's where Jesus said in the most terrifying passage where there's even people who do great works, but at the end of the age, when you stand before him, he says, you may have done great works, but, I never knew, but if I never knew you, depart from me. The resurrection life is quite simply all about knowing him, being with him. That is salvation. It starts now. That is eternity. It starts now. To know Jesus is to know the resurrection life. Their testimonies, and there are many, many more. Every hero in the Bible has, in a sense, the same story of the failure of their life on their own strength and then the enormous victory, the enormous victory to the point where we look at them sometimes and we put them up on a pedestal like we're watching some fake movie. This is not a fake movie. This is the power of the resurrection in broken lives. That's what they're there for. They are there as testimonies of the kind of resurrection that God wants to bring in your life right now. If Jesus can take the life of a woman marked by shame, just clothed in shame, and if you haven't seen the, the Chosen series, I encourage you to watch that. That's beautiful. I cried the first three times Jesus talked to Mary. It's so powerful. And those were man-holy tears, by the way. Because <laughs> there's so much beauty and power when you see it in, in, in humans acting it out. The words on the page come alive. This woman absolutely covered in shame from the wrong family, the wrong place, living in sin, living in darkness, covered in shame, to encountering the resurrecting one. The resurrected one who is resurrecting her. To this place of honor to be the first person to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. If Jesus can do that for her, then he can take all your shame too and show you how to live a life of resurrection and honor as a beloved daughter or son of his. Jesus can take the life of a man marked by cowardice, marked by talking big and delivering weak, uneducated, a peasant, a nothing, a nobody, one who would even deny to a little girl the one who called him friend. But if God can resurrect that life to astonishing miracle-working, Jesus-like power and boldness, then God can take any of your or my insecurities, weaknesses, failures, and make you into a rock. That Jesus says, I'm going to build my church with you. People are going to be astonished like they were of me. They'll be astonished of you because there's resurrection flowing through your veins. To know Jesus is the resurrection life. I want to ask us to take a, a quiet moment right now and listen to the Holy Spirit and ask the question, where is God wanting to resurrect you today? And then we'll finish with my wife bringing a, a word of fire and an opportunity to come forward for prayer. Let's sit in a quiet moment right now.
God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your fire. We thank you that your fire burns within us as the disciples who encountered you on their way. And then after you left, they said, didn't your hearts burn within you? Or one of them said, didn't your heart burn within you as he opened the scriptures to us? So God, we thank you for your fire in us because of your resurrected life in us. We thank you for your word, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. God, we thank you that we are alive in you. You, because you are alive in us. We thank you that you are resurrecting all parts of our lives, all places in our hearts, all places in our minds that have been gone dark, that have gone dark and just been kind of left. I just have this image of um, an old house that, you know, it's been forsaken and abandoned and it's dark and it's rickety and, um, you know, it's been eaten up by the elements. No one's been taking care of it. And um, I just feel the heart beat of God and the fire of God on that, that there's something like that in everyone's life that's been kind of forsaken as, um, or a feeling of defeated, um, too big for God, or maybe it's a label that someone's put on you. It's maybe it's an identity that your circumstances, your choices, or other people's words over you, or just what you've been born into. But he's saying, that is not my word over you. That is not your reality. And he wants to put his hands on those ashes, breathe his life, send his resurrection power, ignite his resurrection power within you, and bring to life what had been abandoned and left and forsaken. However, there is the part of our agreement because do you know that by us standing in agreement that God isn't going to do something and doesn't want to do something, do you know that that actually shuts down the power of God from coming to earth? He comes to earth through our faith. That's why we're commanded in Matthew 6 to pray like this, your kingdom come, kingdom of God come, will of God be done is a more accurate translation so I just want us to um, all take a moment and whatever it is that we feel like his finger is massaging in our hearts, whatever, whatever label it is, whatever lie that we're believing, whatever we feel like we've been under for a long time, 
I want us just to hold that out to him. And I want us just to look at our lift notes. And I want us to read that verse, Romans 8, 11, all together. But instead of saying um, lives in you at the end, we're going to say lives in me. And we are, in this moment, just going to stand in agreement and receive that his resurrection power is upon us in every way that we need it, and specifically on those areas, on those dark places that have been left to just stay dark. Because he died so that his resurrection life could bring us life in everything. So um, I just want to say this out loud together as a church family. Let's just start Romans 8.11. Look at the top of your lift notes. And remember, we're just going to change that last you to me. So on the count of three, <laughs> ready? Yeah, this will be our amen to this. One, two, three. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. God, we thank you that you are alive in us. We thank you that you are setting us free. We thank you that this is what you do. We thank you that you set captives free and you turn ashes into beauty. You turn what is dead into life and resurrected life. Even more, when you, after you were resurrected, it was more, there was more to you than when you were first born on earth. You were filled with power and glory. You walked through walls. There was an even greater power in your resurrected life. And there is now, because of your death and resurrection in us, a redemption where we can see all of heaven unleashed over every single part of our bodies, minds, and spirits. And we thank you for your resurrected life. In Jesus' name. Amen. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. I will dance a new dance like David.